Well, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Remember the whole theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And we started chapter 20 with David, you know, he's running to Jonathan because of this conflict with Saul, and he is wants to know what's going on. Jonathan, your dad's trying to kill me. And, and Jonathan disagrees. He doesn't believe that's the case. He, he, he thinks that it's just the, the, um, probably the demon that's affecting his father. And, and so we see them move through this conflict, and they come to a resolution. And yet while David and Jonathan have resolved their conflict, it still remains to be seen which of them is correct. Only one of them can be right. And so Jonathan is going to part from David to talk with his father, and Saul's response is going to leave both Jonathan and David greatly disappointed. And, you know, I mentioned last week it can be very challenging when your heart is broken to move forward. It is very difficult to move forward, to know, to wrestle with, like, how to move forward, I should say, when that happens. But as we watch Jonathan and David do both move forward, we watch them both doing so, may we learn valuable lessons for when our own hearts experience great disappointment. So, chapter 20, let's begin in verse 18. It says, And Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you shall be missed, because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed three days, then you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you did hide yourself when the business was in hand, and you shall remain by the stone as El. And I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a lad saying, go, find out the arrows. And if I expressly say to the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them. Then you come, for there is peace to you and no hurt as the Lord lives. But if I say thus unto the young man, behold, the arrows are beyond you, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. As touching the matter which you and I have spoken of, behold, the Lord be between me and you forever for you and me forever. Jonathan and David, they spend the first 17 verses of this chapter hammering out their own friendship issues, but there's still some details that need to be ironed out so that David can successfully go in peace, like Jonathan prayed over him uh, in verse 13, when he said, the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan, but if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it you and send you away that you may go in peace. That is Jonathan's blessing upon David, that he will be able to go in peace no matter what happens. But for that to happen, they've got to work out how they're going to communicate what's going on, what, how they will find out, how Jonathan will communicate to David whether he can come back or whether he needs to go in peace. And so here we see that Jonathan tells David, this is the plan I'm going to offer. You know, he says, tomorrow is the new moon, and you shall be missed because your seat will be empty. My father will notice you are missing, David. Your seat will be counted, is what that means. And when you have stayed three days, then you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you did hide yourself when the business was in hand. Uh, the business there is the last time that David went into hiding. Remember the last time that Saul tried to kill him and David had to go into hiding? And, you know, uh, Jonathan came out, and he came out to the field with Saul, and he said, Dad... Why are, you, why are you telling you know, the servants, why are you telling people that you're, you're going to execute David? And he convinces Saul to change his mind. And so he brings David out from where he was hiding, and, and he brings him back to Saul. And things, are, for a very short time, are reconciled. So here he says, go hide in the same spot for three days. And after that time, you know, uh, by the stone Ezel. The word Ezel means departure, so it's, it's possibly that, possible that that stone was named 
Uh, so by David, after this happened, maybe he called a departure because that's how things are going to end up. Spoilers, sorry. He says, but I will shoot three arrows at the side thereof as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a lad saying, go and find out the arrows. And if I expressly say to the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of you, go get them. Then come thou. In other words, you come out of hiding for there is peace to you and no hurt as the Lord lives. In other words, we will go back and see my father just like we did last time. I was able to convince him to do no harm to you. And the phrase he adds, as the Lord lives, as my oath to you, David, I, I, I will be honest with you. I'm not tricking you here. I'm not a part of any plan to hurt you. But that's the plan if things go well. What about if things go badly? Well, Jonathan, verse 22 tells him this is the plan if things go badly. But if I say thus unto the Lord, uh, unto the young man, behold, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way. He says to David, you go your way because the Lord has sent you away. That's interesting. You know, Jonathan reminds David that the Lord is still in charge even though David's going to be a fugitive. You might be saying, how can it ever be God's will for me to be a fugitive? <laughs> how can it ever be God's will for something like this to happen to me? But Jonathan understood that even though we don't always understand why the Lord allows things into our lives, that he, if he has allowed it to happen, you know, I mean, if it happens, he's allowed it to happen. It is important to remember that while God does not make wicked men do wicked things, God does have a plan for us when those wicked things happen to us. And I must learn to trust God's wisdom and to follow his lead when that happens. This is where the big struggle comes in, you know? It's not so much when wicked things happen or wrong things are done to us. I think all of us, to some degree, have experienced wrong done to us because we live in a, a fallen world. You know, if you are married, uh, particularly if you're my spouse, you've experienced wrongdoing because you've experienced it from me. You you have experienced wrong to some degree. So it's not a question of whether we're going to experience wrongdoing or evil or wicked treatment. The question is always going to be, are we going to trust God's wisdom and do things his way? Will we really believe what he says is good and right? We trust him. You know, I, when we were at the pastor's conference uh, a couple weeks ago, this was a huge challenge to me. One of the pastors said, uh, Pastor Malcolm, he said, you know, we, we trust in the power of God. He goes, why is it that we struggle to trust in the wisdom of God? Man, it was like, you know, <laughs> you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, except this thing here that Jesus tells me is best for me. Because if I do that, I don't think things are going to work out for the best for me. And there are numerous things in Scripture that the Lord tells us to do that are greatly challenging to us. Be slow to speak, slow to wrath, quick to listen. I don't know about you, but that's never come easy to me. Because it's not my nature. It's the Lord's nature. David says, or Jonathan says to David, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as touching the matter which you and I have spoken of, referring to their conflict that they had had, and they came to renew their covenant with one another, he says, behold, the Lord is, uh, be between you and me forever. Their matter was the covenant that they would not harm one another's family. However this turns out, David, if you and my father become enemies, we have agreed we will not be enemies. 
We will not do harm to one another, and we will not do harm to one another's families, because remember, that's how culture was back then. You hurt my family, I have to hurt your family. It's just how it was, Hatfield and McCoy's. And so he says, the Lord heard our promise that we be made. He'll be between us, and he will deal with us if we're unfaithful to that promise. If you go back on your word, the Lord will deal with you. If I go back on my word, the Lord's gonna deal with me. And so, you know, it's interesting. We remember Jonathan in the scripture for being a good friend, but we must never forget that he was a godly man. He was a good friend to David, but he tells David here, he says, listen, the Lord was witness to the covenant we made. He was witness to the promises we made to one another, and he will be there, and he will deal with us if we don't honor our word. He reminds David, David, going your way may involve some hard times, but it is so important that you remember your promise. I will remember mine. It's important to be a good friend but it's also important to be a godly person. It's important to be both. I have found many people who are good friends, but they are not godly people. And very frequently, the counsel that they will give me is well-meaning and well-intended, but bad counsel. And sometimes I will talk to Christians who say, well, you know, these people at work that I'm close with, or, you know, this, this, and I ask them, I always say, are they a believer? Are they telling you what God's word says? Well, no. And (laughs) I say, listen, they may mean well, they may mean well, but if their counsel's not lining up with what God says to do, then it's not good counsel. So be a good friend and be a godly person. Be a godly man or woman, godly man or woman as well. Well, verse 24. Here we go. Jonathan's going to confront his father. So verse 24, David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon was come, the king sat down to eat meat. And the king sat upon his seat as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. Uh, The place by the wall would be the back wall, the place of honor. It would be in the opposite entrance uh, to the room. And so when you come in, everyone would see that spot, usually an elevated spot against the wall. So the king saw he is there sitting upon his seat like he normally would. And Jonathan arose, it says, or verse, yeah, verse 25, it says, Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. In other words, Jonathan had been sitting by his father's side, but when Abner, he's the general of the armies, he is Saul's, uh, I believe, cousin. And uh, we'll get to know Abner a little bit more as we move through the scriptures, but his, I don't think he's uncle, I think he's his cousin. Uh, But Abner, the son of Ner, he gets that place of honor at Saul's right hand, and so Jonathan gets up to give uh, Abner the seat. And as Jonathan is getting up to move away from his father, Saul asks uh, Jonathan, he says unto him, oh, it says, it says that when that happened, he didn't say anything. It says he noticed that David's place was empty. So as Jonathan's getting up, that's when Saul notices the place that David normally sits is empty. Nevertheless, verse 26, Saul did not speak anything on that first day of the feast. For he thought something had befallen him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Um, ritually, um, being unclean could happen from lots of different things. Um, I don't want to go into all the details of what could make you unclean because that means we'd have to go through much of the book of Leviticus. 
But based on certain things that would make you unclean, ritually unclean, it didn't mean that you had leprosy or anything like that. That was a different kind of an unclean. But ritually unclean meant you couldn't come to the tabernacle. You could not come and worship. Uh, You were not supposed to be in contact with others for 24 hours because you would become unclean if you did so. In Leviticus 22, 22, verses 3 through 7, it states this 24-hour period where you need to be separate from everyone else. In Leviticus 22, verse 3, it says, Say unto them, whomsoever he be of all your seed among your generations, that goes unto the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow unto the Lord, that they set apart, offer to him. Having his uncleanness upon him, that soul shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. When a man so over the seed of Aaron is a leper or has a running sore, a running issue, uh, you don't want to go back there. That was a rough sermon. He shall not eat of the holy things until he be clean. And whosoever touches anything that is unclean by the dead or of a man whose seed goes from him or whosoever touches any creeping thing whereby he may be made unclean or a man of whom he may take uncleanness, whatsoever kind of uncleanness he has, it doesn't matter. The soul which has touched any such thing shall be unclean until the evening, until 6 p.m., shall not eat of the holy things unless he wash his flesh with water. And then when the sun has gone down, so when it's the next day, he shall be clean and shall afterward eat of the holy things because it is his food. So it's not that they couldn't celebrate, they just needed to wait 24 hours. And so Saul's thinking in his mind, he's like, well, where's David? Surely he must be, that's the only reason he wouldn't be here. He's got to be richly unclean. He's he's taking a 24-hour break. It's a bit odd to me that Saul sent soldiers to come kill David. He went himself to go kill David, ends up preaching a sermon, tearing his clothes. You know, at the very least, Saul's an emotional wreck who can't make up his mind in David's eyes. And it's a bit surprising to me, a bit odd to me, that the only reason he can come up for David's absence is, well, he must be unclean. Oh. You know, he saw, do you think maybe it's because he tried to kill him? Nah, that can't be it. (laughs) Perhaps Saul even thought that ripping his clothes and prophesying, that should have convinced David that David was safe. Perhaps Saul had even deceived himself into thinking he dealt with his sin. I don't know why Saul thought this way. But I will say this to you. When I'm not right with the Lord my thinking is usually quite off. When I'm not right with the Lord, I, my thinking tends to be off. I tend to read situations incorrectly. I tend to assume things that are the farthest thing from the truth. And, and I make decisions based upon unsound thinking. And so Saul, he can't figure out why David's not there. He must be unclean. So verse 27, the next day, it says, nevertheless, Saul didn't say anything. Verse 27, it came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty again. He's not there again. And so Saul says unto Jonathan, his son, wherefore, which means why, why comes not the son of Jesse to meet, to eat, neither yesterday nor today? He doesn't need, he, he, if he was unclean, 24 hours should have been enough. Why isn't he here tonight? Why wasn't he here today or yesterday if he's not unclean? And so Jonathan answered Saul, verse 28, He says, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said to me, let me go, I pray you, for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother, he has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, he's saying this is what David asked him, let me get away, I pray you, and see my brethren. Therefore, or this is why, he comes not under the king's table. So Jonathan goes ahead, 
uses David's lie, and then he adds this bit about David's brother uh, to, you know, get a response from Saul. Uh, But Saul doesn't just respond. Saul sees right through the lie. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and there's some PG-13 language here, guys. Close the women, hide your children. And he said unto him, Thou son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own confusion and unto the confusion of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the ground, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Wherefore now, send and fetch him, fet, send and fetch him unto me, that, for he shall surely die. Now, remember, this is not a private conversation. This is in the middle of a feast. Hey, Jonathan, why hasn't David come to the feast? Why didn't he come yesterday? Why is he not here today? Jonathan tells the story, and Saul just erupts in anger. He says unto him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, that is not, the word woman is not in the original Hebrew, okay? It is not likely that he was insulting basically his wife and saying, you're not my kid, you're her kid. You know, I do that sometimes. Well, not like that. I don't call my kids the son of a perverse, rebellious. Okay, see how I can scoop my way out of this one. Every once in a while when something happens, we'll look at each other. Here, I'll fix this. You do it too sometimes, you know. Right? She's complicit, so I'm okay. Um, You know, we'll say to each other, that's your kid, you know? Right? I mean, you probably, you're like, no, you're evil. We've never done that. That's your kid, you know? That's not what Saul's saying here. You know, your mother's a horrible person. You're, her, you're clearly her kid and not my son. That's not what he's saying here. Woman, the word woman's not in the original Hebrew. If you have an old King James, it's actually in italics. It was very common back then to call wicked people sons of Satan or sons of sin. And the word perverse is just another way to say sinful. So what basically Saul is saying here is not, he's not insulting his parentage from his mother's side. What he is doing is saying, you might be an Israelite, Jonathan, but you act like a son of Satan. That's what he's telling him. You act like a son of Satan. You're not acting like my kid. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own confusion means disgrace and shame? I know about your friendship with David. I've known all along. I know you've chosen him to your own disgrace and to your own shame. He says, under the confusion, the shame, the disgrace, and now mother. I think this is why they put woman up there because of the comment made here at the end. He said, unto the shame of your mother's nakedness. Jonathan, you have exposed our family. By choosing David over me, you have exposed yourself. You've exposed your entire family to danger. And by doing this, Everything I fought to win will never be yours. Because as long as David is alive, it will never be yours. Now, here we see Saul's heart. This, all this jealousy that we've been seeing in the past, all this concept of how the Lord told him and said, because of your sin, I, I, I have ripped the kingdom from you. Remember when he grabbed Samuel's you know, cloak and it ripped, and, and Samuel looked at him and said, in the same way you've torn my cloak, God has ripped the kingdom from you. 
You have persisted in your rebellion. You've persisted in your stubbornness. You cannot be king anymore, Saul. And Saul said, no, I have fought too hard to get this, and no one's going to take it from me. All of those thoughts, all the jealousy, everything that he saw David as a threat to what he had built, not what the Lord gave him, but what he had built, we see it all verbalized in the statement to Jonathan. For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the ground, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Wherefore now, send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. Wherefore means, I'll give you a chance to fix that, Jonathan. You can fix everything right now. You go get David, and you bring him here. I know you know where he is. And I'll put him to death, and this threat will be gone to our family, to our kingdom, to the kingdom you're going to have someday. And Jonathan says unto his father, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said unto him, verse 32, Wherefore, why? Why shall he be slain? What has he done? Jonathan is truly stunned by his father's words. This has never come out like this before. Saul had said, we got to kill David, but, but Jonathan had convinced him otherwise. This is wrong. Father, this is sin for you to do this. He has done nothing wrong. And so Saul changed his mind. And so he really believed that it was just all these circumstances that had influenced his father in a way that he had convinced himself that this had to be done. And so he's stunned at this confession. Jonathan really believed that David had overreacted or misunderstood somehow. And now that it's out there, Jonathan's asking why. Why? What has he done? Like Jonathan had in the past, he confronts his father's sin by asking what wrong David is to be executed for. Dad, you don't just get to kill people whenever you want just because you're king. And Saul's response is, watch me. Look at verse 33. And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him. Whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. Whatever shock Jonathan was in at that moment, whatever confusion was in his mind, whatever he didn't understand, everything became crystal clear in the moment the spear came hurling in the air towards him. That his father truly believed he had the right to kill whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted, whether wrong was done or not. And so Jonathan, verse 34 He knows David is right and there could be no reconciliation. And so, verse 34, Jonathan arose from the table. It says, in fierce anger. It means with face flushed, his nostrils flaring. Jonathan is livid. And he did eat no meat the second day. He couldn't stay a moment longer at the feast. For he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. While Jonathan's anger was certainly a match for his father's, it was a different kind of anger, though. The word grieved means to be distressed. And he was distressed because Saul's very public words, his public accusation that David wanted the throne, he knew that David would never be the same. His life would never be the same after that. He was angry because he was brokenhearted for his friend. 
Jonathan knows it because Saul has humiliated David by calling him a rebel in front of everyone. David, as much as he might try to clear his name, won't be able to do so, not in a way that Jonathan hopes for. So Jonathan was angry because of the wrong his father had done, certainly, but he was distressed because how was his innocent friend to have any kind of life as a public fugitive? And I imagine his heart was equally devastated for his father. Jonathan wasn't a fool. He, he never ignored his father's faults or his father's sins. But he'd seen good things too, hadn't he? Saul wasn't a, a baby when God called him to be the king. Jonathan had been in the army. He had seen the victories that Saul had won. Jonathan surely fought against the, I want to say the Ammonites in Saul's first major conflict watched God use his father to free the men of Jabesh-Gilead to defeat the Ammonites. He had been there for the good things too. Maybe you've had a, a friend or a family member and they've made some bad choices, but you always, you see the other things too and you have hope, right? You have hope and you look and you see, well, surely, you know, there's, there's you, know, <laughs> you know, surely it's still good somewhere in there, you know? Surely there's, there's some desire to serve the Lord, even though there's some of these bad choices. But all of that got, I mean, it's not like the apple cart just rolled over. I mean, somebody took a hatchet to it, right? Whatever good things that Jonathan saw, he realized that's not going to weigh in here. This was horrifying to him. If you've ever had someone you loved or respected do something awful, you know what that feels like. It's a great betrayal because the awful thing that they've done means they were also too selfish to think of the pain they'd bring to those who love them the most. It wasn't just that they did wrong, but they were so selfish they didn't think about how that wrong would affect the people who love them the most. So if you're a, a husband or a parent or some other kind of leader, remember that people who love you are watching your life. They believe the best about you, just like Jonathan did about his father. They, they don't ignore your faults. They believe the best about you, and they're trusting you to make good choices. So you're, if you're in one of those roles and you're making selfish choices, I urge you to repent because one of the biggest lies out there is that my, well, my sin, it just affects me. That's not true. Our sin affects everyone around us. And sometimes it wounds people very deeply. Verse 35. And it came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad with him and he said unto his lad, run, find out now the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad was come to the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? That was the code that things did not go well with Saul. So Jonathan cried after the lad, make speed, haste, hurry. Don't just stand there, stay not. 
And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the lad did not know any, he didn't know any of this was code. He didn't know anything, only that Jonathan and David knew the matter. And so when all this was done and he had retrieved his arrows for Jonathan, Jonathan gave his artillery unto the lad, his weapons, his bow and arrows in this case. And he said unto him, go and carry them into the city. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Jonathan to pull back that first arrow? With every shot, every shot he took, he knew he hastened the moment that he and David would be parted. Every arrow he shot, he knew that he hastened the moment that David would get the crushing news that, David, you're not even a free man in your own country anymore. You need to go. You need to get to safety. And you know, considering that this is the same place David hid before, and that the Bible tells us that Jonathan brought Saul out to this field so David could overhear the conversation that him and his father have, and the fact that Saul confided in Jonathan and had said to Jonathan, I know everything about you and David. Can you imagine the risk that Jonathan's taking coming to the same spot? It's very likely his father's thinking he's going out to get David. I wouldn't be surprised given how self-minded, self-centered, narcissistic that Saul was. Can you imagine the risk that Jonathan was putting in himself here? How was he to know that Saul wasn't having him watched? Every hour he shot put his life in just as much danger as David's life. Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us no one was in on it except David and Jonathan. And when all was said and done, a devastated David emerges from the hiding spot, verse 41. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. And they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace. For as much as we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, Lord, be between me and thee and between my seed and your seed forever. So he, David, arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan comes out, I mean, David comes out of hiding, and he falls on his face, bows himself to the ground three times before Jonathan. You remember he had accused Jonathan of, you know, not accused, that's the wrong language, I shouldn't say that. He had asked Jonathan to prove his loyalty. And Jonathan had told him, say, don't ever ask me that again. God forbid that that I would ever do that. Don't say it anymore. You know I'm loyal to you. So David, in bowing down to his friend, that his friend stayed true, he acknowledges that Jonathan was loyal all along. He does deference to him here. And when that's done, it says they kissed one another and, and wept with one with another until David exceeded. The phrase here, kissed one another, has often been used to say, well, this is evidence that David and Jonathan were in a homosexual relationship. There's a part of me that doesn't even want to dignify that with a response. However, may I suggest to you that one of the reasons we don't understand this correctly or there are some who would suggest something else is going on here is because 
we don't understand relationships, period. We, we tell our kids these days, I say we, the, you know, humanity we, well, you know, you know, if you, you feel like a, a girl and you're a boy, that's, you know, well, maybe you are a girl, you know, trapped in the boy's body. Why, why does someone think they're a girl when they're in a boy's body? Why does someone think they're a boy in a girl's body? Just as someone, I know this is anecdotal evidence, but just as someone who counsels a lot of young people who have struggled with some of these things, and I do not belittle the struggle. That's not my thoughts at all. That's not what I'm trying to communicate here. But as someone who has ministered to individuals in this spot, one of the things I frequently hear them say is, well, I'm not attracted to the opposite sex. To which I would say, you're 13, you're 15, you're 16. Why are you associating and understanding any type of relationship or lack of relationship or who you are and what you should be with attraction? Listen, we are all very unique. God has designed us in unique ways, all right? There are things that I might find attractive that you could care less about. It doesn't make me a different gender or a different species than you, all right? All right? If, if I prefer eye color or hair color or whatever, and someone else says, why this? You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, like we're having the, the, the daddy-daughter dance, and, 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 you know, my two girls did not choose the same exact thing. One of them chose this color and this style, and the other one chose this color and this style, you know? And we didn't have to have any serious conversations to sit down and go, now, why did you pick purple? You know, I think we need to understand and delve into why you picked purple, There is nothing wrong with a 5-year-old, 7-year-old, 9-year-old, 14-year-old, 17-year-old, 21-year-old, 35-year-old person going, I'm not really attracted to the opposite sex right now. Why why do we have to be defined by being attracted to something? And more often than not, when I talk to some of these individuals, they're hurting because they go, I think I'm weird. I'm being told I'm weird because I'm not attracted to something. And it's because our culture is so over-sexualized that we can't understand and conceive of any kind of relationship that doesn't have attraction involved in it. What if your spouse, God forbid, I pray this never happens to anyone, but what if something happened to them and and they were no longer capable of fulfilling physical desires for sex? What if they were no longer attractive to you? In what way, shape, or form does that affect the relationship, the base of your friendship? It doesn't. And when we try to define, I'm sorry for going on a rant, but when we try to define relationships and love only on attraction, we are coming down, please forgive my language, but to the dog that's looking for somebody in the neighborhood because it's time. We were created for so much more than that. My bride is my best friend. 
She is gorgeous to me. But she is my best friend. And God forbid anything would ever affect any of those things that are wonderfully attractive to me about her. We, she would still be my best friend. She would still be the love of my life. She would still be the one that I want to go to bed with, that I want to wake up to, that I want to hold her hand, that I want to walk down the beach, that I want to talk to and spend the rest of my life with. Period. So the reason I am tempted to not even dignify this with a response, clearly I already have, is because we have such a a wrong way of just approaching relationships in general. I tell young people all the time, because especially when you see others, especially if you start getting into your, your college years and stuff and you start seeing others go off and get married and, you know, and you're like, well, what about me, right? And, and to be frank, I don't know how to sympathize with that because me and Beverly dated when, right before my senior year in high school. I've never known what it's like to be an adult and be single. So I, I, I can't come on and go, man, I was there. You know, that was rough. I didn't know where I was going to find my bride. Nope, I had mine when I graduated. So I, I see folks, and they come to me, and they experience that pain of I see people around me getting married, and I'm lonely, and, and, and I don't sympathize in the sense because I've never, or empathize, whatever the word is. I'm not there because I, I've never gone through that. But I see the pain. I see the difficulty. But I'm not trying to be callous when I say build good friendships. Build solid Friendships. Because in the end, the person you want to marry is your best friend. The phrase here, kissed one another, it literally means to kiss a man, uh, it says to kiss as a man to his friend. Now, we don't do that in our culture. Uh, I I had a a dear friend of mine, uh, he is a very German, and uh, and he was not, uh, he didn't display emotion hardly ever. Um, You know, one of the things you don't know about Germans is, is we're very, I'm German, uh, very passionate. Um, that's why we're usually in a war most decades <laughs> of history. <laughs> but we also tend to be outwardly very formal. You know, you say, well, you're not formal at all. Yes, I'm also half Puerto Rican. <laughs> you get it all. <laughs> but there are very special moments when I knew he had been deeply impacted through our friendship. He would kiss me on the forehead. Not something we do in our culture. But in the Middle East, I, my first experience when I was in Peru, went down to Peru on a mission trip, and uh, and. Everybody's kissing me on the cheek, and I'm just like, okay, this is weird. I, there's one woman who's ever kissed me in my life, and that's my wife, you know? And, uh, and my mom, well, my mother too, but, you know, you get the idea, you know? Definitely not used to being kissed by strangers, you know? And I've got guys who are like, wah, wah. I've got ladies, wah, wah. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm just rolling with it right now, but I'm you know, definitely out of my comfort zone. But then after, like, the third, you know, Central American, South American country you go to, you're like, okay, this is just how it is. It's not our culture here, but in the Middle East, that is... That's what the holy kiss is. It's the kiss on each side of the cheek. That's, it's the holy kiss. That's why it was so, when Judas comes, he comes and he kisses him on the side of each. It's, it's, that was a holy kiss. 
And, and that's why Jesus says, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a, a kiss? A, a sign of deep friendship? This phrase here is that same phrase. They're not like some HBO porno here. This is a man kissing his friend. My wife's going to say, don't ever say that again. <laughs> Maybe not the best choice of words. And they wept one with another. The word there means to sob, to wail, to convulse. They were just broken. Even though Jonathan loved his father, he knew the Lord had rejected him as king. Jonathan believed David would be Israel's next king. We're going to see that later on in 1 Samuel. But you know what Jonathan's dream was? I'm running out of time. I've got to move quickly. The whole rant wasn't in the notes. Jonathan's dream was to be a support for David as they partnered together in leading Israel to new heights. That was his dream. His dream was to succeed where his father failed. These two men, the reason they weep together is because it was very easy to see that dream as dead right now, gone. And so how on earth would either of them find a future that they wanted, the future they had planned for now? In Proverbs 13, 12, it says that hope deferred makes the heart sad. Deferred means postponed, dragged out. The word sad actually means sick, weak, wounded, sore. And oh, how shattered dreams, shattered hopes weaken our hearts. It's normal and it's okay to experience sadness and grief in those moments because there's a sense where something has died. But it's not okay to stay there forever. And so it tells us that they did this until Jonathan exceeded. The word there means he took it to another level. While Jonathan found consolation in weeping with his friend, David became overwhelmed. All of those questions came piling back. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And so Jonathan speaks up and repeats what he told David in verse 13. That he would go in peace. He says to him, go in peace. I know right now, David, you're feeling overwhelmed. You have questions, but go in peace. That word peace, the word go means you must walk a different path. We wanted to walk this path. This is what we had planned for. This is what we had covenanted together to do. But that's not happening right now, David. You've got to go a different path than I have to go right now. But you need to go and take that path in peace. Shalom. I don't have time tonight to go into the meaning of that word shalom, but it means to be whole, to be intact. It speaks of completeness, soundness, wellness, and safety. He says, David, you're going to heal from this. Yes, you're broken right now, but you're going to heal. You're going to be intact again. You will be safe someday, even though you are sick and you're broken and you're in danger right now. And how could Jonathan know that? 
because it wasn't David alone against the Lord. Jonathan had his back and so did the Lord. And that truth would last even after Jonathan and David departed from this world. He says, go in peace for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord be between me and thee and between my seed and your seed forever. David, I've got your back. The Lord has your back too. And so David arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. I'm sure David could never see a way that even have kids, let alone kids that got along with Jonathan's kids. And so, since David couldn't see it, Jonathan saw it for him. And he saw beyond that to the future that God would bring to both of their families despite their awful current situation. And when we get later on in First and Second Samuel, we will see when David becomes king, that he shows great kindness to Jonathan's children. And they have a place at his seat in the kingdom. So even though, though while Jonathan and David could not experience that dream, it did come true in a different way. So Jonathan, he goes his way back into the city. David arose and departed. There are still many unknowns for these two broken hearts. But the knowns, their friendship and God's loving care, those outweighed the unknowns. So how do each of their stories end? Well, they do see each other again. David survives Saul's manhunt to become Israel's next king. And Jonathan returns to Saul's side as one of Israel's chief commanders. And just because a dream dies doesn't mean all dreams have died. Remember that the next time you experience disappointment. Rest in God's love. Like I said next, last week, do the next thing. Stay close to those who love you even if the things they tell you are hard to hear. Jonathan was a good friend because he told David the truth. Be that kind of friend too. Let's all stand. Well, I don't remember who said it, but they said all the world lies in wickedness. That's true. But you are still God, and you are still on the throne. And so while David has experienced all, all this wickedness, Lord, we can surely think to our own lives where we've experienced wrong. And so I pray for those who maybe even right now are experiencing disappointment in their own life, that a dream has died, or maybe it's in the middle of dying. I pray that you comfort them, Lord, that you would be that friend that sticks closer than a brother like Jonathan was to David, and that they would know the comfort of your presence, of your promise, that just because this dream died doesn't mean all dreams die. That you who have begun a good work in them will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you help all of us to rest in your love, to keep walking with you, to take the next step, and Lord, to listen to good counsel from those who love us. In Jesus' name, amen.